Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series on the life of Jacob. And here, James Jordan is going to be in Genesis chapter 44, verse 14, through Genesis 45, verse 15, where Joseph reveals who he truly is to his brothers. As always, we do invite you to check out those show notes where you can sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race. You can also find a link to our YouTube channel where we've just started a series walking through the book of Revelation, and you can find our other social media handles there as well. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapters 44 and 45 as Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Well, we're in chapter 44. And starting in verse 14, and where we are, of course, is that they have been back to visit Joseph the second time, and they have had dinner with him, and he has set up Benjamin to see if they are going to respond to Benjamin the same way they responded to him. Special privileges are given to Benjamin, and now he has made it look as if Benjamin is trying to make himself a prophet. One of the things they resented about Joseph was that he had these prophetic dreams. Here comes this dreamer, this lord of dreams, they said, when they attacked him. Two things they resented about him. One, that he had the special garment and had special privileges and was ruling. And the other thing they resented was that he claimed to be a prophet by telling him these dreams. And so Benjamin is now in the same position. He's been given all these special privileges and now it looks as if he's trying to make himself a prophet by stealing the divining cup. So now Joseph has got the situation set up. And we take up the narrative. In verse 13, it says, When the goblet was found in Benjamin's pack, they rent their clothes, they loaded up their donkeys and returned to the city. And that's a good sign. It indicates that they care about this. When Joseph disappeared and into slavery, it was... Jacob, who tore his clothes, thinking that Joseph was dead, now all the brothers are expressing their consternation over this event. They feel differently about Benjamin. So, verses 14 to 17, reading from Fox translation, Yehuda and his brothers came into Yosef's house, he was still there, and flung themselves down before him to the ground. And Yosef said to them, What kind of deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can divine? Yes, divine. And Yehuda said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? By what can we show ourselves innocent? God has found out your servant's crime. Here we are, servants to my Lord, so the one in whose hand the goblet was found. But he said, It would be a sacrilege if I should do this. The man in whose hand the goblet was found, he shall become my servant. But you go up in peace to your father. Well, now they come into Joseph's house, and this is the third time they bow down before him. We remember that was one of the original dreams, that stars and sheaves of grain would bow down before Joseph. And here they do it again. This is the third time that they have done so, and they don't just bow down ceremonially. They fall down in abject supplication before him. 
And Joseph tells them that he is a diviner. Do you know that a man like me can divine? That means he can see mysteries that ordinarily are known only to God. That he can even see the future. That he has the power of divination. Now, of course, we know that this has a double meaning here. They think he's an Egyptian, but he has magical powers. But he doesn't have magical powers. He does have the prophetic gift from God, and so it's absolutely correct what he says. And what he's saying to them is that they can't escape his knowledge. Didn't you realize that I would know about this? That I would realize what you'd done? That you can't escape me because God shows me things. And that means you can't escape God. And that's what he's trying to bring them to, to see that eventually God finds out what you've done. And Judah said, verse 16, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak by? What can we show ourselves innocent? He says, there's nothing we can say or do. We don't understand how this happened. There's no way we can prove ourselves innocent. And he says, God has found out your servant's crime. Here we are, servants to my Lord, the one in whose hand the goblet was found as well. The word find occurs a bunch of times here. We're finding things. They find silver in their sack. They find the goblet in Benjamin's sack, and now God has found them out. And this relates to this idea of of finding things that are hidden. The silver was hidden in the sacks, the goblet was hidden in the sack, and now God has found out something. And yet, the fact is, the brothers are not guilty of stealing the cup or the money. That can't be the crime. When Judah says, God has found out our crime, He can't be speaking of stealing anything because, in fact, they didn't do it. And what this shows is that, and, of course, everyone reading this knows it, you know, we instinctively know that what's on Judah's mind is selling Joseph into slavery. And all of these events have brought this to their mind, and they rightly perceive that they are being punished here, that God has organized circumstances in such a way as to punish them for something they did years ago. Even though they're not related, from what they can see, uh, there's no relationship between this man and his hostility to them and these events on the one hand and what they did 22 years previously to Joseph. But they know that God is doing it. Because it's an eye-for-eye world. In Jesus, we don't have to undergo eye-for-eye punishment in the ultimate sense, but God's justice in history is always eye for eye. Is it necessarily the only thing in this passage is the selling Joseph into slavery. The murder of the men of Shechem doesn't come up, so I suppose at some level it's all those things, but the only thing the text calls attention to is selling Joseph. So... It's clear that the guilt of their crime from years previously has at last come upon them. But Joseph wants to focus their attention on Benjamin and give them a way of escape. If they want to go home in peace, they can. They just leave Benjamin there. And this is the final part of the test. He says, and he's got it translated, Heaven forbid that I should do this. But in Hebrew, it would be a desecration. It would be a violation of God's law. It would be a sin against the holiness of God if I should do this thing. 
enslave them all. Because that's what Judah offers. He says, enslave all of us. Originally they had said, we will all be slaves and the one who has the goblet will be put to death. Well, now that it turns out to be Benjamin, Judah doesn't repeat that business about putting Benjamin to death. And we see in that that he's already acting to try to protect Benjamin. He wants to take back what he said earlier about all of them being slaves. And if you find the goblet, the one who stole it will be put to death. He with whom it is among your servants, he shall die. And we will become my Lord's slaves. Of course, the steward had already changed that and said, no, only the one who stole it will be a slave. And Now Joseph says the same thing. He said, the man in whose hand the goblet was found, he shall be my slave, but you go up in peace to your father. So he offers them an escape. Will they take it? They sold Joseph into slavery. Now they have an opportunity to put Benjamin into slavery and escape. And then we have the great speech here in Genesis 44 by Judah. And the commentators point out this is the longest speech by human being in the book of Genesis. So in some sense, maybe this is the climax of the whole book where one man offers to die for another. And so we don't really need to look at it in detail because it's so familiar, everything that's said. But there are a few things we can say just in terms of the way it's put together here in the text. The word father occurs 14 times. The word brother five times. The word lad seven times. These repetition of these words show that family love and solidarity is now important to them, especially to Judah who is speaking for them. And then the word Lord, referring to Joseph, occurs seven times, and the word servant, speaking of others as Joseph's servants, occurs twelve times. And again, this piling up of these terms indicates the fullness of the prophecy that they would be servants of Joseph. And he just continually says, my Lord and your servant and so forth, which drives this point home. And yet at the same time, the appeal is, please don't destroy our family. We have a father. We have a brother. The conflict among the family, the alienation, is being overcome. Alter, in his Art of Biblical Narrative, says this about Judah's speech. He says, This remarkable speech is a point-for-point undoing, morally and psychologically, of the brothers' earlier violation of fraternal and filial bonds. In other words, the bonds between brothers and father. It's undoing those violations. A basic biblical perception about both human relations and relations between God and man is that love is unpredictable arbitrary and at times perhaps seemingly unjust. And now Judah comes to an acceptance of the fact with all of its consequences. Love seems to be arbitrary, and Judah accepts that. His father, he states clearly to Joseph, has singled out Benjamin for a special love, just as he singled out Rachel's other son before. It's a painful reality of favoritism, with which Judah, in contrast to the earlier jealousy over Joseph, is here reconciled. Out of filial duty and more out of filial love, in other words, love for his father. 
His entire speech is motivated by the deepest empathy for his father, by a real understanding of what it means for the old man's very life to be bound up with that of the lad. He can even bring himself to quote sympathetically Jacob's typically extravagant statement that his wife bore him two sons, as though Leah were not also his wife and the other ten were not also his sons. Twenty-two years earlier, Judah engineered the selling of Joseph into slavery. Now he is prepared to offer himself as a slave so that the other son of Rachel can be set free. Twenty-two years earlier, he stood with his brothers and silently watched while the bloodied tunic that they had brought to Jacob sent their father into a fit of anguish. Now he is willing to do anything in order not to have to see his father suffer that way again. Well, on the next page of your notes, I've given you an outline of this. There is a rough chiasm in this speech in terms of some of the key words and phrases, and it's interesting what comes up in the middle of it. I'm going to read it now, and then we'll talk about it just a little bit. We don't have to look at the details here, because they're already very familiar to us. So starting in verse 18 to verse 34... Now Judah came closer to him and said, Please, my Lord, pray let your servant speak a word in the ears of my Lord. Do not let your anger flare up against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Do you have a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an old father and a young child of his old age, whose brother is dead, so that he alone is left of his mother. And his father loves him. And you said to your servants, Bring him down to me. I wish to set my eyes upon him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father. Were he to leave his father, he would die. The father would die. But you said to your servants, If your youngest brother does not come down with you, you shall not see my face again. And now it was... When we went up to your servant, my father, we told him my Lord's words. And our father said, Return, buy us food rations. And we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face if our youngest brother is not with us. Now your servant, my father, said to us, You yourselves know that my wife bore two to me. One went away from me. I said, For certain he is torn, torn to pieces. And I have not seen him again thus far. Now should you take away this one as well from before my face, should harm befall him, you will bring down my gray hair and ill fortune to Sheol. So now when I come back to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, with whose life his own life is bound up, it will be that when he sees that the lad is no more, he will die. And your servant will have brought down the gray hair of your servant, our father, in grief to Sheol. For your servant pledged himself for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, I will be culpable for sin against my father all the days. So now, please let your servant stay instead of the lad as servant to my Lord. But let the lad go up with his brothers. For how can I go up to my father when the lad is not with me? then would I see the ill fortune that would come upon my father. Well, that's the speech. Let's just look at it briefly. 
Verses 18 and 19 are kind of an introduction. Judah draws near and begs to be allowed to speak a word. This is this humiliation before the Lord Joseph. And he begins by reminding Joseph that Joseph asked about did they have a father and then learned that they had a brother and asked about that as well. And then the speech begins in verse 20 by talking about their father and a child. We have an old father and a young child of his old age. His brother is dead. He alone is left with his mother and his father loves him. And that, of course, is where we return at the end of this speech. Let me go. Let me go back to my father because how can I go back to my father if the lad is not with me? Joseph says that he wants to put his eyes on this younger brother here in verse 21. But in verse 30 to 32, it's the eyes of Jacob that are mentioned. If his eyes do not see, if he sees that the lad is no longer here, he will die because his life is bound up with that of the child. The C section, verse 22, we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. Were he to leave his father, he would die. Similarly, Jacob says the same thing. As reported by Judah here in verses 27 to 29, my father said to us, I've already lost Joseph, he is torn to pieces, and if you take away my other son and harm comes to him, then I'll die. You'll bring my gray hair in misery down to Sheol. And then we have repeated phrases in the center of it, verse 23a, if your brother does not come down to us, If your youngest brother does not come down to us, is matched at the end of verse 26. If our younger brother is not with us, you will not see my face again. And 23b is matched by the phrase right before that in 26. We cannot see the man's face. And at the center of this structure is Jacob saying to go and get food. Now, we read this impassioned speech here and... We are so encouraged and we are supposed to pay attention to where the speech goes in terms of Judah's self-sacrificial offer. But there is something else here as well that we want to notice, and that is the way the speech is set up, the need for food is at the center. And what that is pointing to, I think, is that someone has to die to provide food that others may live. Food has been a central theme throughout this entire last section of Genesis, the Joseph section. It's been bread and wine consistently from start to finish. And how do you get bread and wine? Well, somebody has to die as a substitute because people are naturally going to starve. In the beginning of the book of Genesis, God gave food to Adam and Eve. And that's the climax of the creation narrative. I'll remind you of this. We think of the six days of creation and that the climax of those six days of creation is the creation of man. But that's not actually where the story climaxes in Genesis 1. The sixth day, the sixth day has three events on it. God said, let the earth bring forth animals. And then God said, let's make humanity after our image. And then in verse 29, the third thing that happens on the sixth day and the climax of the whole story before the coming of the Sabbath is 
God said, Behold, I give you all the plants that bear seeds that are on the face of all the earth and all the trees in which there is tree fruit that bears seeds. They shall be for eating and also for all the living things of the earth, for all the fowl of the heavens, for all that crawls upon the earth in which there is a living being, all green plants for eating. And it was established. Now, that gift of food then is extremely important. And, of course, what's happened over and over again in Genesis is that we have famines. And there isn't any food. And when we looked at the Exodus later on, we find we get out in the wilderness and there isn't any food. Because having sinned against God, we deserve to starve. And Jesus has to go into the wilderness for 40 days without food in our stead. And the only reason we get daily bread is because somebody else starved. Jesus on the cross rejects the wine that is offered to him until he has finished his work. Somebody else has starved and been without food and water so that we can have food. And that's in the background even of this passage here because of the way it's laid out. We, we want food. We're starving here. There's a famine. Jacob says, go get food. But how are we going to get it? Well, the answer is... Somebody has to die to provide that food. Well, the person who has died to provide the food is Joseph. They don't know that yet. They don't know that this is Joseph. But Joseph was the one who went into death by being sold into slavery, by being thrown down into a pit, and then sold into slavery, and then thrown into the pit of prison. These death experiences, and then resurrection experiences, are what enable him to be the one who provides food for the world. They don't know that yet, but the way the passage is structured, there's death. Death and food. The only way they're going to get to take the food back to Jacob is if Benjamin is left behind. Benjamin has to die, so to speak, and become a slave, or else they can't get food back. And that's the crisis for them. And so... Judah says, no, don't make Benjamin die. Let me die. Let me be a slave. And that way my family can live and have food. So that's where we are. It's something as simple as a mother or a father being willing to die so that their children have food or their friends, in this case a younger brother. But it's something as profound as Jesus dying on the cross so that we can have daily bread as well as his own body and blood. And so it's at the center here, and we want to take notice of that, even though the main thing that we always focus our attention on is Judah's offer to die. And as Alter pointed out, Judah shows that he now understands and sympathizes with his father's love and preference for one of the brothers. He no longer resents this. You have 12 sons there, father prefers one over the rest, they resent it. You get old enough and you begin to understand that parents love each child differently and what looks like preference in some regards may not be preference in others, but that human beings are fallible and weak and we can't love perfectly the way God does. And Judah is now able to feel this. It's a hard thing to learn to accept that the father's life is bound up with Benjamin in a way it's not bound up with him or Issachar or Zebulun. But he's now 
able to sympathize with his father in that regard. And that shows something completely different from the way they acted 22 years earlier. And then, of course, Judah offers himself as a slave in Benjamin's place, and that's the heart of the passage and the heart of what it means to be a king. A king is someone who dies for his people. Jesus doesn't die for us because he's a priest. A priest doesn't have any people to die for. A priest is a servant. Jesus dies for us because he's a king. On the cross it said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And the king is willing to die for his people that they might live. And that's what Judah does. And that's why as we move to the end of this, we'll see Judah is the one who is said to be the king and from whom the messianic king will come. Because he displays in his action here that he has understood the heart of the matter. And that's an important political fact, (laughs) that true kingship is sacrificial. It's not a matter of lording it over others, Jesus says. Those who would be great must be least of all, must be servant of all. And that's hard to do because it sneaks up on you. Where you want to be in charge and you want to control things, God says you can't be in charge, you can't control things, and you have to let go of things, and that's not easy. Well, that's the situation they've come into. They could have said, okay, Benjamin stays here, we go home, we take food back. It's not an unreasonable temptation. At this point, Judah is married, he has his own sons, and we looked at chapter 38, we know that that story goes down into the future beyond this event, because it couldn't all happen in 22 years. But Judah is certainly married now, he has teenage sons, Possibly one of them's already married. He has his own servants. He has responsibilities of his own household. And so do all these other brothers. They're not just getting food for themselves. There's thousands of people they're getting food for. And, well, we have to leave Benjamin behind so that we can take this food back for our people. Then that's what we have to do. It's a real pressure situation. It's not like Judah gets to say, well, I can do this because I'm all alone and I don't have any responsibilities back home. If he stays here as a slave, somebody else is going to have to take care of his family. This is a hard decision to make. It's a hard offer to make, and yet he's willing to offer it. And that's the beauty of it. That's the heart of it. And as I said, if there's any meaning to the fact that this is the longest speech in the book of Genesis, then in a sense this is the heart of the book of Genesis. Oh, it's the climax of the book that one man should offer to die for another. To die for those that he loves. To die for those who may not have treated him as well as they should have. So, we've read it. We've looked at it. There's no real reason to go through this step by step because we're already familiar with it. Well, this speech brings about what Joseph needed to see and wanted to see. And in chapter 45, verses 1 to 15, Joseph reveals himself. We'll read this and just a few comments on it, because again, there's not much here that's not thoroughly familiar or that requires any in-depth explanation. Chapter 45. Yosef could no longer restrain himself in the presence of all who were stationed around him. He called out, Have everyone leave me. So no one stood with him in attendance upon him, when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He put forth his voice in weeping, 
The Egyptians heard. Pharaoh's household heard. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were not able to answer him, for they were confounded in his presence. This is a major shock. Joseph said to his brothers, Pray, come close to me. They came close. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not be pained. Do not let upset be in your eyes that you sold me here. For it was to save life that God sent me on before you. For it is two years now that the famine has been in the midst of the land, and there are still another five years in which there shall be no plowing or harvest. So God sent me on before you to make you a remnant on earth, to keep you alive as a great body of survivors. And so now it was not you that sent me here, but God. God has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Make haste, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not remain. You shall stay in the region of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your sons and the sons of your sons, your sheep, your oxen, and all that is yours. And I will sustain you there, for there are five years of famine left, lest you be as disinherited, you and your household, and all that is yours. Behold, your eyes see, as well as my brother Benjamin's eyes, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So tell my father of all the weight I carry in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and make haste, bring my father down here. And he flung himself upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and then he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after this his brothers spoke with him, and the news was heard in Pharaoh's household, and they said, Joseph's brothers have come, and it was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants." Well, in the first verse, we find that Joseph dismisses all of his courtiers and retainers. Uh, This is obviously out of emotion, but I think it's also so that the brothers can receive what he has to say more easily. You've got a bunch of Egyptians standing around, and he's going to tell them all this stuff that would mess up what needs to be communicated here, because they'd be constantly aware that there are other people in the room. But the Egyptians hear about it, And that begins a chiasm here that ends with the fact that they were told that they heard about it and that it was good in the eyes of the servants. The Gentiles, hearing of the good news that comes to the Jews, are encouraged by it. And that's a good thing. At the center of this structure is the statement, Go to Jacob and tell him the message from Joseph. It's in verse 9a. Make haste to go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, and then so forth. That's really the good news. That's going to be the good news that brings Jacob back to life again when he hears that Joseph is alive. And so that's the structure, and I don't think we need to look over it. The thing that stands out to me is that the Gentiles are in view at the beginning and end of this event, and at the center of it is good news to the Jews, so to speak. And the Gentiles participate in this good news. They rejoice in it, which is good for them. It fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. So just a few comments on it, and then we'll be done for today. In verses 2 to 4, Joseph weeps. The Egyptians hear. He asks, is my father still alive? Well, in a sense, he should know the answer. They've been talking about his father right along. Some expositors say, well, It's just Joseph is so excited he asks it again. 
I don't think that's ever the primary reason something's in the text. This could easily be the case in terms of emotional and psychological dynamics. But I think he's saying to them, is my father alive? I'm Joseph. I am your brother. This man you've been talking about is my father. And is he really still alive? It's a way of getting them to see who he is. And they don't answer. There's no need to answer because the answer is obvious. But Joseph is saying, your father is my father. And then what's important, what Joseph says, and what is equally important is what Judah has been doing, offering himself, is that this all happened in God's plan. Don't be upset. You did sell me here, but God sent me on before you to save life. God was in charge, and we all know why. God sent me on before you to make you a remnant. It was not you that sent me here, but God. Well, that's plain enough. He's not saying they did nothing wrong, but he's saying, you understand that even when you sin, it's in God's plan. He can work good things out of it. Things that are bad initially can, over the course of time, become not only good, but wonderful and far better than you could ever imagine. So he encourages them to trust that fact, as we have to do. We could link this up with God sending people on ahead. Moses, of course, goes into the wilderness for 40 years before Israel does. Jesus goes through his life before we go through our lives. And Jesus goes through his life in order to provide for us so that we can come into life after he does. So Joseph going on ahead and preparing a place is a theme that's throughout the Bible. And it's obviously climaxed in Jesus going on ahead of us in his life and going to heaven and everything else that he does first to provide for us, to provide bread and wine for us, as well as daily bread. We want to notice again something we pointed out before, but here it is, we've arrived at it. Verse 8, God made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over the land of Egypt. Father to Pharaoh, God said to Abraham, you will be a father of many nations. This is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham is now the father of the Egyptians. All the Egyptians rejoice in this. They're all saved. All these people are in heaven. Pharaoh and his household and the Egyptians in general. And they have become part of Abraham. As it says in the book of Romans, that Abraham is the father of the circumcision and of the uncircumcision. Any uncircumcised people that have the faith of Abraham are sons of Abraham. And that's not that's something that's true in the New Testament. It's something that's true throughout the Bible. And so here he uses this language that's very strong. Of course it means he's an advisor to Pharaoh, but the choice of the word father points us back to the Abrahamic covenant. And then he tells them in verses 9 to 13 that he has a new land for them. They're going to stay in the region of Goshen, near me. We don't know where this is. I glance at the commentators and they all say, we're not sure where Goshen is located. It doesn't seem to be an Egyptian word. So that Egyptian records and Egyptian hieroglyphic information never uses this word. So we don't know where in Egypt it was. But it's a large enough place for several thousand people to move into with all of their sheep and oxen. And it's not going to be far away from wherever the palace and throne was at this time. It will be near Joseph in some general way. 
and he can take care of them. So he tells them there's five years of famine left. That's why they need to come here. That This is a sanctuary that God has set up for them to move into. Verses 14 and 15 show this reconciliation. He flung himself on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Of course, this is the first time they've ever met, really. So that's something here. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. Kissing, of course, is a sign of unity. And after this, his brothers spoke with him. Now, of course, we read that and we say, okay, they had a nice conversation. How are things back home? Yeah, I, was, I hate to tell you this, Joseph, but your mom, Rachel, died giving birth to Benjamin and all the other things that they have to talk about. But one thing we don't want to miss out on is that at the very beginning of the story, they couldn't talk to Joseph. Chapter 37, verse 1, when his brothers saw that Joseph, whom their father loved above all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak to him in peace. They could not speak to him in peace. And now there's peace, and now they can speak to him in peace. So that's the reconciliation of that very first statement of the alienation between them is now brought back. They could not speak to him. That's the first thing we read about it. Just remind you of that too. Remember, Joseph brings back a bad report. And he gets the special tunic, and the brothers could not speak to him in peace. That's the first thing we read about. Then they have the dreams, and they don't like the dreams, and he has another dream, and they don't like the dream, and so forth. But the very start of it is they couldn't speak to him in peace, and now that's reconciled. So this is a literary signal or tag that shows us that that story has come to an end at last. And then, of course, the very last thing in this little section here is The news was heard in Pharaoh's household. They said, Joseph's brothers have come. And I think they probably knew that, or some people knew it, but this has to be taken in a more pregnant sense. The brothers have come. They've been reconciled. Everything is settled here. Whoever among Joseph's servants, obviously Joseph's steward knew about the problem because he was the one putting the silver in the sack and putting the silver cup in the sack. So he had some knowledge of the problem. And now they see the problem is reconciled, and they're happy about it. Remember what Romans 11 says, that the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and then when it goes back to Israel, then it's life from the dead, and we're supposed to rejoice in that. The Gentiles rejoice when the gospel finally goes back to Israel, and they accept it as well. And that's what we see here. This is all very positive. Next time we'll look at what Pharaoh says, and all the good things that Pharaoh wants to do, for God's people, which again fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. But for now, we'll close in prayer. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.